We are starting a brand new sermon series we're calling Provocatively. I've already had some people get all over me about it. I know it was meant to be provocative. Things God does not know, but I'm glad we have a church that's like, whoa, that ain't right. I know it's not right, but you came, see? (laughs) Things God does not know. I know. So it's a short sermon series. Nothing God doesn't know. Be warm, be filled. Head to your cars. (laughs) You didn't think I could preach short, short sermons, did you? There you go. That's the whole series. Not. Okay? Things God does not know. And the first one we're going to look at is God doesn't know any other way for you to get right with him and to begin to change and grow for a lifetime other than repentance. See what I just did, how that works? God doesn't know any other way for you to get right with him and stay right with him for a lifetime, changing and growing to become more like Christ other than repentance. It all starts with repentance. And make sure you don't take that word and say, well, it started with that. And now I move forward with all kinds of Bible studies and accountability partners and small group. And all those are good things. But folks, repentance should be something you get a hold of as a believer for a lifetime, for a lifetime. For a lifetime. But I know as soon as I use this word in our culture today, woo, not, not happy. Our, this is a word that has fallen on hard times in our culture today, right? Because as soon as you say the word repent or repentance, it conjures up a notion of, well, if we still got that word repentance in place, then there must be a holy God who has a standard that I did not create. And there must be some people who fall short of that or outside of that. And somebody just might be wrong oh and somebody's wrong there's a right and a wrong news alert yep there's still a holy god there's still a standard and we're wrong sometimes but see we're living in a day where tolerance is queen she's on the throne today tolerance and that's the spirit that has swept through our college classrooms and that's the spirit uh, that is alive and well on all the afternoon talk shows and that's the spirit that is actually hovering around all the political think tanks where everyone's trying to think how can I be shown that I'm a part of this whole thing called tolerance because apart from that you don't even get a hearing and yet our world which they often do has taken a word and hijacked it and sucked the very definition out of it and stuffed it with something different that tolerance today means I have to affirm you and accept you and tell you you are okay no matter what you do. Now listen, as believers, get this, we're all about tolerance because I want people to tolerate me having a view that still follows the Bible. But there's no place for me killing you for having a different view. There's no place for me shutting you down for having a different view. But I can be tolerant and still out of love It would be the most unloving thing to not speak up and tell somebody that's a path of destruction. God's word tells us that's a path of destruction. For me to speak truth from God's word is not being intolerant. But our world has said tolerance means not just that I'm silent. See, there was a day where the culture was saying, just go over there, Christians. Go to the edge of the playground and press up against the chain link fence and just believe what you want to believe. That day is over. It's now, you can't even do that because we're afraid of you. You are the enemies. You are going to hurt somebody. This is like, you still believe that? We got to shut you down. We got to stop you. And we will not stop you until we hear you say with your mouth that you believe what we believe is good and everyone should do it. And I know about you, but I can't do that. I've been called to follow the Lord Jesus Christ 
all the way to the end, whatever that looks like, continuing to say what he says and believing what he's called us to in love and humility. I'm not going to have placards. I'm not going to have the veins in my neck standing out while I scream at people outside of abortion clinics or while I scream at homosexuals. There is no place for that. But to lovingly continue to say what God says and hold to what God says is what he's called us to do. And therefore, get this, don't get all excited and think, good, it's a message on repentance. We're gonna still, still, still tell people to repent. We ought to be proclaiming repentance and living it for a lifetime. It ought to be a part of your life. That constantly, God's just putting his finger on something in your life and you are repenting, you are repenting, you are repenting. Repentance is essential for holy living. So we don't just proclaim it, we live it. So what does repentance look like? If we're going to use this word a lot in this message, and we are, what's repentance look like? What are we even talking about? Very often it's helpful before you say what something is, is to say, hang on, it's not that. And it's not that, and it's not that, and it's not that. Especially if that is something you see all the time touted as repentance. So let me do that for a minute. Let me point out some of the biggest repentance counterfeits. What we do, it's not really repentance, but we're guilty of it a lot. Number one, it's the salvation army guy with the bell response. Here's what I mean by this, especially at Christmas time. You parked your car, you're heading towards the door at Walmart. There's the man or woman with the red kettle hanging on the tripod with the bell, ringing the bell. And you think to yourself, oh, goodness, i got to get past them. They know I have money. I'm coming into this store. Now, I've never thought this. I've just heard of people that do, okay? So I'm bringing it before you. I, you know, ah, what a, oh, awkward moment. And so you just think, and this is what we do with God's conviction very many. What's the minimum amount that I can drop in the kettle to just ease my conscience and get the bell to stop ringing? Right? That's what too often we do with God's conviction. He's putting his finger on something in our lives, But the goal is not brokenness, honor God, sorrow, genuine remorse. It's just get the bell to stop ringing or get the bell to just become a little more faint in the background. So I'll just do this. I'll just throw God a bone. I'll just give a little something to... That is not repentance. And that's not God's answer for real life change. Number two big counterfeit, and it's very similar to the Salvation Army guy with the bell, but a little different twist on it. It's the blackmail response. There's a knock... On the door of your heart. Who is it? Conviction. What do you want? I know what you've been doing. I know where you've been going. I know who you've been seeing. You do. Yeah, I do. So what? I'll tell you what. I got a list of everything right here. Alphabetical, dated, verified, notarized, with video surveillance tapes to boot. You're dead. What are you going to do with that? Well, if you don't respond correctly, I just might have to take it to your small group leader, your pastor, your spouse, your parents. Okay, okay, okay. What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? What do I have to give up? What do I have to give up? It's sort of the payoff mentality. The conviction comes. You say, all right, I'll just do something. I'll give something just to get conviction off my back and just to save face so that the whole true ugliness of this situation doesn't come tumbling out in front of people that I know and respect that I want to keep knowing and respecting me. That's not repentance. 
and it's not God's answer for real life change. Number three, big counterfeit. I call it the aw shucks humor response to conviction. You ever seen this? You ever done this? It's where you feel like you're going to take a step and make it look like, okay, I'm owning this. I'm admitting that's me. For instance, you hear a sermon on anger. And it's awkward. Throughout the whole sermon, you're thinking, my wife is thinking about me. My kids are thinking about me. This is awkward. Might as well just kind of in the car, bring it up. (laughs) That whole message on anger. Yeah, dude. That is so me. I'm going to have to wait at least. Kids, I'm going to have to wait. Daddy's going to have to wait at least a week before he kicks the dog. <laughs> like he usually does. Or jumps down mama's throat. <laughs> okay. So you're like, let's just bring it out in the light. Let's own it for a minute. But let's make light of it. Let's teach the kids. We just make fun of sermons when it's actually, you know. Dude, call me Mr. Mount Vesuvius. <laughs> Suvi for short. <laughs> yeah. That's not repentance. And it's not God's answer for real life change. But I got one more. Big counterfeit. And it's my favorite today because you see it. Our culture is eaten up with this and has been for several decades now. It's the Oprah Winfrey response to conviction. I know she's no longer prime time, but forevermore she will represent this, right? I mean, she's the queen. She is the queen of confess everything. Change nothing, right? But a good cry, especially a group cry on public television, will do us all some good, all right? Confess everything. Change nothing. And make sure you know as you confess all this publicly that we still accept you just as you are. And as long as you're willing to confess it and own it, you go forward proud of who you are. You don't need to change anything. And even though Oprah's no longer prime time in the afternoon, there's plenty of Oprah wannabes leading people to do the same thing. Confessing, blubbering, dabbing their eyes, airing their dirty laundry publicly, but changing little or nothing. Believing that somehow this catharsis of publicly getting all these emotions out will make a difference. Get this. Repentance is more than emotional vomiting on public television. And it's more than an avalanche of words. Repentance involves change. Repentance involves change. And so that brings us full circle back around to the original question. What is real repentance? Well, the Greek word for repentance that you see most often in the New Testament. The New Testament was originally written in Greek. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. The Greek word for repentance in the New Testament is metanoia. Taken from two words, meta, that means change. Noia, that's taken from the root word nous, mind. A change of mind. A change in the way you think about something. A change in direction of your life. And your life, the direction of your life will not change unless your thinking changes. Hello. You can turn this way to save face. You can turn this way out of pressure from your spouse or somebody else. But it won't be long before you're back where you were unless the thinking changes. Meta, noia. A change of mind. A change in thinking. Peter Jeffrey describes repentance this way. He says, repentance is not a case of trying your best to get rid of all the sin in your life and put things right. What repentance means is this. The sinner, conscious of his guilt and aware of God's mercy in Christ, turns from sin to God. 
the repentant sinner finds himself loathing and hating sin and longing to live in obedience to God. Get this. It's both. Repentance has two sides to it. It's both. It's a turning away from my sin and to God. To God. Let me give you a simple definition. Repentance is turning from sin to God with empty hands, making no demands. See, very often we come, we turn sort of from our sin, and we sort of come to God, but we want to play, let's make a deal. Genuine repentance is not trying to get God to make a deal. It's saying, God, I want to make it real. I want to make it real. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I really want to see change. I really want to go in a new direction. From our sin to God. Repentance has two sides to it. And both are sin. When genuine repentance is taking place, you'll see both of these operative in a man or woman's life. Both. Stay with me. Let me illustrate to you why it has to be both and how you could just have one piece of this. A person could turn away from their sin. Did you know this? But have no interest in turning to God. They've just begun to see, because hello, sin leads to destruction. Not just for Christians, everybody. They just think, I'm not getting good results in my life. I'd like to remove some of the toxicity and destruction of what I'm doing. But I have no desire to turn to God. Please leave God out of the equation. Please don't. It hadn't come to that. We don't need God. Let's not get that radical. Let's just tweak this a little bit. Because I want to largely keep doing what I've been doing and get different results. Different fruit. I'm going to just turn over a kind of a new leaf on my own. It's my own effort, my own resources to get some different results. That's not repentance. So there's a turning from the sin to some degree, but all for the wrong motives, wrong reasons, and God is outside of the equation. But watch this. You might not thought, have thought you could do this. Did you know that you can also come to God, cry out to God for mercy, and still be clutching your sin and have no interest in letting it go? You're just calling out to God, crying to God while you clutch your precious sin, while your little fists are still clutched around your precious sin, and you have absolutely no intentions of letting it go. But God, I want your mercy, I want your forgiveness. I want your blessing. I want, I want your face to shine on me. This is where we, you share with your small group people. Oh, pray for me. Pray for me. Oh, man, life's gotten hard. Pray for me. Pray for me. Pray for me. Very often, folks, people can pray all day long. And while you're still clutching your precious sin and you have no intentions of truly letting it go, you don't get grace. Jonah 2.8. Bonus. It's not in your bulletin. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace, NIV says mercy, that could be theirs. It's both. So it's not just turning away from your sin for less than noble, God-glorifying reasons, saying let's tweak this, let's adjust this. These are bad results. And it's not just turning to God and crying out for mercy, but still clutching your sin. It's turning away from sin to God with what kind of hands? Say it. Empty hands making no, what? Demands. Not trying to make a deal with God. I want to make it real with God. Here we go, here we go, here we go. That's repentance, it's both. So, 
How do you know? Maybe you're thinking this already. I hope you are. I hope I've stirred it up and up that you're thinking, all right, Brad, how do I know if I'm really repenting? How do I know if I'm truly repenting? Because Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us something about our own heart. The heart is desperately or deceitfully wicked, and who can know it? You can deceive yourself. So what might be some checks that I could look at? What might be some distinguishing marks of genuine repentance? That's what I want to give you. I want to go to God's Word because there's some marvelous passages that make it very clear. How do I know if I'm truly repenting or if I'm just playing around? All right, that's what I want to give you in the time that remains. Number one. You know you're really repenting and you can expect significant life change to start showing up when, number one, you start owning up to your sin instead of covering up your sin. Owning up instead of covering up. That's the hallmark of true repentance. See, genuine repentance takes full responsibility for sin. And begins to see it as God sees it. And stops the whole blame game and shift game. It stops rationalizing. It stops excuse. You know someone is truly not repentant when they're still hurrying through the opening phrase. I know I could be a better husband. I know I shouldn't have done that, but. Drop the but. If there's still a but, and then you move on. But she, but he, but they, but them, but when, but because, but, 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 but. Genuine repentance is when you Start owning up to your sin instead of covering up and shifting and blaming. Here's the other thing. Part of that, not covering up, let me say this. Genuine repentance is when you own up to your sin, not just parts and pieces of it, but all of it. Here's what too often people do. I'll own up to and I'll confess and I'll acknowledge what's already been found out and what I think is about to get found out. It's about to come into light, so I might as well say it first. I know I have a truly repentant person. When I start hearing things, I didn't have any idea. All of it. What's going on? What's going on? You start owning up to your sin instead of covering up. You push it into the light with your name on it. Me, 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 me. Let me give you an example in Psalm 51. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 51. A great distinguishing mark chapter of repentance. What does it look like? What does genuine repentance look like? Psalm 51. Beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 4. Psalm 51, 1 to 4. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions. Now look at me. Too often, the person who's not genuinely repentant is still busy pointing out what everyone else did he says i acknowledge my could there be other people that played into this yeah but leave that alone that's not yours to deal with that's not your problem whose sin is the sin you should be most concerned about my sin first my sin the worst my sin is what i need to be working on most That's how we should approach, that's a sign, that's a distinguishing characteristic of genuine repentance. For I acknowledge my 
iniquity. And my sin is ever before me. You're starting to see your own sin. You're starting to become aware of, oh, ah, ah, that's me. That's me. That's me. You don't try to airbrush it. You don't try to just make it look better than it is. That's me. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Make a note of this. Here's what you can see. Many good things that you can learn and see from those four verses. But here's one. Genuine repentance brings about a massive pronoun reorientation. What are the pronouns you see just littered through those four verses? I, me, my, I, me, my, I, me, my, I, me, my. Not he, she, they, them. I, me, my. Has there, let me ask you, has there been a massive pronoun reorientation in your life yet? If not, it's very likely that you're doing something other than genuinely repenting. You're not on the path yet. And you're not, you should not expect significant life change. You start owning up instead of covering up. And there's a pronoun reorientation that is foreign to our world today. It's foreign to the afternoon talk shows. It's always somebody else's fault. There's always somebody else to blame. One of the proofs that your repentance is genuine is that you stop worrying about your image and what people think about you. See, there's a massive pronoun reorientation that you can see there in in Psalm 51, verse 1 to 4. But there's something else you see there. You become extremely God-conscious instead of people-conscious. You see what David said there? Look at it in verse 4. Against you, and you only have I sinned. Which is actually an awkward statement at first when you think, wait a minute, David, back it up. Did David sin against Bathsheba? That was weak. Yeah. Did David sin against Bathsheba's husband, Uriah? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Actually had the man killed. It's pretty bad. Did David sin against his own children who are watching the sweet psalmist of Israel who should be leading an example of saying he's a, he's a God lover and yet he does it? Yes. Did he sin against the nation whose eyes were fixed on their leader? Yes, 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 yes. Then what does he mean? When repentance gets a hold of you, and you are genuinely broken over this, there's a pronoun or reorientation of it's I, me, my, and there is an awareness, a heightened awareness of, oh my goodness, sure, I sinned against Bathsheba, it's awful. Oh, sure, I sinned against, but against God, a holy God. My sin was against God who's been so good to me. My sin is a vile stench in his nostrils. My life just said to everybody who knows me, this sin is better than my God. This is more satisfying than my God. This is what I really want against you and you only have I sinned. It's hyperbole. He sinned against a lot of other people. But in this moment of brokenness, he's just gripped with, oh, God, there's an awareness and a heightened consciousness of God. Because get this. Remember the quote I often give you from Bonhoeffer? When you step into sin, you are forgetting all about God. You don't hate him. 
There's just a forgetfulness of God. When you are repenting, there isn't a forgetfulness of God. God's front and center, and you're like, oh, that was against God. I made God look bad against you, and you only have I sinned. He's extremely God-conscious now to the exclusion of what everybody else might be thinking about him. Listen, when you start to really repent, you embarrass spiritual pretenders. There's people around that might be, you know, playing at repentance. And when you begin to really repent and come into the light and own it and pronoun reorientation and a heightened sense of God, you embarrass them. You make them squirm and you make them feel uneasy. Like, dude, 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 settle down. Shh. You don't have to get so radical. It's radical. You stop thinking about your image and what people are thinking about you. Let me put it to you this way. Sin keeps you focused on people and your own reputation. Repentance brings you back to God and his glory. What are you focused on? Sin keeps you focused on other people and my reputation. Genuine repentance, just, it's God and his glory. What do you have today? What are you being characterized by? See, Proverbs 28, 13 tells us, whoever covers their sin, tries to hide it, will not prosper. But whosoever confesses, and too often everyone's done right there. Yeah, I confessed it. Told my wife, told my husband, told God, and I'm telling you, Pastor Brad, can't we just move on? Whosoever confesses and, what's the next part? Forsakes it will find mercy. You don't get mercy unless you're doing both of these, my friend. And it's the forsaking part that sometimes is harder because you may have fallen into a real habituated sin and it's got you. You can confess and that's a great start. Confession is essential. You're just not done. That's where biblical counseling comes in. That's where a good friend comes in that would walk with you long enough to help sort out. I'm never done with someone once they say, I'm in the light now. I'm telling you what happened. Please forgive me. Let's move on. No, let's not. Because we need to ask some questions. We need to drill down. We need to think, how did you ever get there to begin with? What are you thinking? What do you want? What do you worship? What do you prize? What do you treasure? What really have you built your world around? Where did you get off track? Who are people in your life that need to be removed from your life? Who were you hanging out with that were not a good influence? What were you taking in mentally, whether through the internet or through reading or through television or whatever? You better spend some time thinking, what am I going to alter and adjust and amputate from my life so that I don't end up in that same stinking sinful trough again? Because you will. There are people running around. It's just confess and do it again. Confess and do it again. Confess and do it again. And they want to treat pastors sometimes like they're confessor priest. I told one guy one time, don't call me again to tell me what you just did last night. You call me when you are tempted and you're getting your car keys at 3 in the morning and you're about to drive over that place and do it again. That'll show me you're repentant. You're putting on your clothes. You're getting your car keys. You're starting your car. You're driving across the river to Cincinnati to go to places because we already removed things in your life here and you can't do it and you want it so bad you're doing it and then you call me the next day to confess. That's not repentance. 
You tracking with me? Because it's quiet. If you don't like this, you don't understand this. Just, oh, I did it again. You did. Okay. Not good. I said, I am ready. The moment you are tempted, when you're thinking, oh, I want to, I want to do that again. I'm going to, I'm, I want to go there. I want, call. Ask for help to forsake it. It shows you don't want to forsake it. You own up instead of covering up. Distinguishing mark of genuine repentance. Number two, distinguishing mark. You start seeking God for mercy instead of acting like he owes it to you. Get this, true repentance, true repentance is the end of the entitlement attitude towards God's mercy. Here's what I mean. We got too many people coming to God's presence, clutching their favorite sins still to the breast, saying, God, this is who I am. This is what I've done. So far, so good. No problem. Listen to the next phrase. And this is what I intend to keep right on doing for as long as I want. And whenever I ask for forgiveness and cry out for mercy, I want you to give it to me. You owe it to me on demand, regardless of me letting go of anything. There's the deal, God. You're God, and I, my job is sinning, and your, God is for, your job is forgiven. This is how this works, God. I sin all I want, and you forgive every time on demand. I just, forgive me, God. Forgive me, God. Forgive me. I got news for you, my friend. That's not biblical. It's arrogant. It's presumptuous, it's hard-hearted, it's man-centered, and it's totally unbiblical. God does not owe you mercy. Is God merciful? Yes. Louder. Yes. Does God forgive? Yes. Did he promise to forgive regardless of your intentions, while you clutch your favorite sins and say, I have no intentions of letting any of this go, but I want you to forgive me every time, right on time, on demand, just like me pulling the lever on a slot machine. No. Because here's what I want you to do. Take that attitude I just described. Here I am, God. This is who I am. This is what I've done. This is what I intend to keep right on doing for as long as I want, as often as I want, And whenever I ask for forgiveness, you owe it to me. You have to forgive me regardless of what I let go or change. Let's take that attitude, hold it, and bump it up against Isaiah 55. Isaiah chapter 55 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man, his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So many people today have a cavalier entitlement attitude towards God's mercy and forbearance, as if he owes it to us, and that it's our right to get mercy whenever we want it, on demand, regardless of our response. The Puritans called this sinning with a high hand. We just thumb your nose at God's commands. So I'm going to do what I want to do for as long as I want to do it, and then I'll just cruise into your presence and cash in on that whole mercy thing. Doesn't work that way, my friend. 
And I want you to notice something from Isaiah 55. It tells us to seek the Lord while he may be found. I hope that rattles you as much as it rattles me. Because guess what is being indicated? He may not always be found. Now, don't hear me saying, does God ever go away? Is God ever an absentee? He's just distracted. But you know what it's indicating? There are times, listen, unless God is drawing you, unless God is convicting you, unless the Holy Spirit's putting his finger on you, you'll be lights out in a coma to your sin. When the Holy Spirit is convicting you, stirring you, putting his finger on something, don't squander that moment. It may not come back. If that scares you, be scared. Be very scared. Because listen, sometimes God will just give you what you want. You persist in your sin long enough, playing little games, still clutching it, demanding this, that, and the other. He may just decide to let you experience Romans chapter 1. Remember that? It's been a while. Where it says three times he turned them over. Just running. And guess what? A hardness begins to set in. Because the longer you pursue your sin and the deeper you go in it, guess what starts to happen? Your sensitivity to the things of God begins to wane. The conviction of God begins to get quieter and quieter and quieter. Your flesh is so eaten up and just indulging. You will not, quote, find God. Seek the Lord while he may be found. If he's calling to you, if he's convicting you, if he's stirring you, respond, my friend. That is a precious gift. He doesn't owe it to you. Why are there other people that spend a lifetime just going further and further and further away, getting harder and harder, and life just begins to fall apart more and more, and we're all saying, dude, what are you doing? Guess what? They have no sense of God, and he's not being found. That could be you. That could be me. If he's extending a call and a conviction and a stirring, oh, one of the most precious things he could give to you. Don't squander that. Because let me say something scary. Because so far I haven't. <laughs> you think that's scary? Let me, let me compound it. Did you know that the Bible talks about people who cried and tried to repent but could not. You don't want to be that person. Esau. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Esau, Hebrews 12, beginning of verse 15. Hebrews 12, verse 15. Looking diligently, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by this many become defiled lest there be any fornicator all right so people are not married having sex being sexually intimate and they're not married you're a fornicator lest there be any fornicator but look where he goes next or a profane person that that's someone who just treats as insignificant tramples across the holy things of god like god's drawing and convicting and mercy and forgiveness. And since you just treat that as like worthless. Or a profane person like Esau. Esau. Who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. 
He sets up Esau, even though it wasn't a sexual sin. You know what kind of sin it was? It was a sin of the appetite. I live for the immediate, the right now, in the moment. I want what I want, and when I want what I want, I take it and I satisfy myself. He's like, don't be, don't be that. Oh, because that person ends up in all kinds of other sins. A fornicator or a profane person like Esau, who forfeited, who gave up for one morsel of food, sold his birthright. For you know that afterwards, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Scary verse. So why couldn't Esau repent? Let me show you another sobering yet precious passage. 2 Timothy 2. Aren't you glad you have your Bible? Bring a Bible. We use them here. And these are places you want to get marked so you'll be able to go back to this kind of stuff. 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 20, 24. Oh my goodness, this is a passage that last Thursday I took these verses and I got on my knees and I prayed and fasted all Thursday for our Easter services, crying out these verses. And I want you to see why. Look at what it says. Verse 24, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If, if God may perhaps grant them, say it, Can people just repent any old time whenever they want to in their own? Let me give you the answer. No. Are they called to repent? Yes. But this tells you, oh my goodness, that grant, God may grant them repentance. And then notice every other phrase after that is hinged on that, is conditioned on that. God has to do what only God can do first before you can do any of these other things. If God may perhaps grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, that they may come to their senses, that they may escape the snare of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will. you got loved ones who are captive to sin or a mess. And it's like, that's why you can preach to someone, teach to someone, share with someone, talk to someone. It's like, unless God grants them repentance, they can't even know the truth. They can't come to their senses. They can't escape the snare of the devil. But God is a merciful God, and it's not his will that any should perish. He calls, he calls, he calls. But we better pray just my sermons, just my argumentation, just my exhortation, just your love and reaching out will not break through. God has to grant repentance. And as he does, don't squander it because the human heart is stony hard God has to give you repentance or it's lights out and you're just you stay in your sin coma let me give you another true distinguishing mark of real repentance you know you're repenting and you can expect significant life change when number three you start going hard after God. You start going hard after God. Instead of deeper into self-pity and worldly sorrow. Now maybe you're saying, but Brad, how do I know what going hard after God looks like? And how would I distinguish the difference between worldly sorrow and real godly sorrow? So glad you asked. 
Because God has a great passage in, in, in the Bible that gives us exactly what that looks like. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. What does real repentance and real godly sorrow look like versus just boo-hoo-hoo-hoo with crocodile tears? What's it look like? 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. Because get this, before I read these verses, verses 9 to 11, understand this. Genuine repentance is more than just wallowing around saying, I'm no good, I'm so bad, I can't believe I did that again. I'm no good, I'm so bad, I can't believe I did that again. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry. All kinds of people get sorry. They can be sorry life's turned out so bad. They can be sorry that their reputation is ruined. They can be sorry, 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 sorry. Sorry doesn't get it, folks. I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to, say it. Therefore, we can draw the conclusion, could you have sorrow that never leads to repentance? Stronger. You better believe it. Not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer, not suffer loss from us in anything. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing. Here's what he's going to do. Look at me. He's saying, let me take godly sorrow and set it up on the table and let's dissect it for a minute and give you a good view of what does this look like. He says, let me help you. For observe this very thing. Here we go. He's going to show you what godly sorrow looks like. Observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. See, the thing that you loved before, you're indignant over it. Oh, that sin. Oh, oh. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication in all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. I wish we had time to dig into every one of these phrases, but at the very least, I hope you can see from these verses. Biblical repentance has a strong dose of get up and go, not just wallow around in woe. Do you hear it? Zeal, diligence, vehement desire. Here's what I say to people as I work with them. Your repentance, your repentance should be as bold and as well-known as your sin was. People can see how hard you were going after this, how much you wanted this. Get this. When someone commits adultery, you got to work really hard to pull that off, my friend. Two different phones, a separate apartment, hotels, scheduling. Where's the wife? Where's the kids? I still got to pretend I'm at soccer and drop them off and scoot over here. You're working really hard to go after your sin. Take that same energy and work that hard on glorifying God. Don't just say... Well, I've confessed it. We're done. Where's your zeal? Where's your vehement desire? All that energy that went after that sin, you put it towards glorifying God now. That's genuine repentance. It has a get up and go to it, not just a wallow around in woe. The person who just cries and mopes around about it is not repentance. Lastly, number four. Distinguishing mark of repentance. You, here's what it looks like when you're really repenting, you can expect significant life change when you fix your eyes on Christ and his work on the cross instead of keeping your nose pressed up against the window pane of your own sin, obsessing over how bad you are. 
Titus chapter 2 gives us the right perspective. When it says in verse 13 and 14, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. See, that's, there's that same word again. You're looking for Christ. You love Christ. Get this. If you just hate sin, you don't have enough. You've got to have a passionate love for Jesus Christ or you'll be back. You've got to have a greater burning yes. You better not just say, well, I'm trying to make sure I don't go there again. I've got accountability partners. I've changed my job. I've, I've changed cell phone numbers. Great. But you better be getting into the presence of your Savior, drinking in living water, loving him, worshiping him, delighting him, sitting at his feet, reading his word, loving him, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of a great God and Savior. Because when you're more satisfied in who he is in your life, you won't be as hungry or tempted to go back over here. The distinguishing mark of genuine repentance is a passion of a turning because remember i said it's turning from sin to god and your savior with empty hands making no demands sean brulman executive director of setting captives free that is an excellent ministry for sexual sin said though we can often point to a lack of amputation or a failure to remain accountable to someone locally or a lack of time in the word is the problem the truth is the practical application teachings in our courses of radical accountability, amputation, appropriation, are in and of themselves of little lasting value without the fourth and most important one that for now we can call radical adoration. For the sake of time, read it all, all, all of yourself. But I'm going to skip to the end, the last couple sentences. Without falling in love with Jesus Christ and seeking to serve him daily with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, it'll only be a matter of time before our resolve to stay away from those old idols begins to weaken, and down we will go. You got any of that? You got any radical adoration? True repentance is when you start owning up instead of covering up. True repentance is when you start crying out for mercy as a precious gift and treasure and not just something he owes to you. And true repentance has an element of radical adoration and love for Jesus Christ. Is there any place for repentance in your life? And are you spiritually alive and growing and becoming more like Christ? Those two questions are not unrelated. You will not be spiritually alive and you will not continue moving forward growing to become more like Christ without repentance. It is it's just a huge part of this. I'm continually having to repent. God's stirring me. He's putting his finger on something. He's exposing something. He's revealing something. He convicts me through his word. He convicts me through the mouth of my wife. He convicts me through our small group. He convicts me through something I read. And I gotta respond. It's a lifelong of repenting and turning away from my sin to God with empty hands making no demands. What about you? I'm gonna give you some homework as we close. I want you to download an article from Jim Elliff that I think is excellent. Love it. I take it away sometimes with me for days of prayer and fasting for myself to search my heart. You can get it at our Facebook page, our Pinterest page. You can get it on my Twitter page, the Florence Twitter, Newport. We've posted it all there. Download it, and it's called The Unrepenting Repenter. And he gives 12 things that you could do that look like repentance, but it's not. You're still playing around. It is so 
helpful. And I want you to get alone with God. Take some time this week to get alone with God and work your way through it. It's, it's not long. It's short. But it's convicting and powerful. And just say, Lord, am I guilty of falling into the trap of some of these that really fall short of true repentance? Make me that man or woman that practices genuine repentance. Not to save face, but for the glory of God. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you tell us about repentance, that that's still a word we've got to have. Never mind what our culture says. We've got to have this, and thank you that it's your good gift. Along with mercy, you grant repentance. May we not squander it. May we not squander it. May we be people who form the habit of turning to you and repenting and owning up quickly at the smallest beginnings of stirring of your spirit. Oh, may we not become Romans 1. May we not experience you turning us over and giving us what our flesh wants. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your word. Thank you for conviction. Thank you for direct access to your throne. Thank you for a great high priest. And thank you that we can be forgiven of every and any sin as we repent. Oh God, work your good work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.